hope that you will take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 4. This morning we are returning to the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to consider a familiar story about the power of God and an all-too-familiar response to God. It's a familiar story. You've no doubt heard it before. And the questions this familiar story pushes us to consider are these. First, who do we believe God to be? And second, how does our understanding of who God is impact the way we respond to difficult seasons in life? So two questions. Who is God? Who do we believe him to be? And then how does our understanding of who he is impact the way we respond to the situations of our lives? Significant questions. You know, when we come together each week, we sing songs confessing the things that we believe about God. So we sing and we confess together corporately as a church and as Christians that God is good, that he's sovereign, that he's powerful, that he's in control of of all things, things that we believe and that we affirm together as Christians. We sing about them. We've just sung about them, right? About the goodness of God, the power of God, the might of God. The question is, and here's what I want you to consider this morning, we're going to talk about who God is, but then as we consider who he is, the question is, does that inform the way we live Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and throughout the week? Or, and this is, I'd say, likely for many of us at times, there's a disconnect between what we profess about God and how we think about the things that are happening in our lives. It can be a struggle. You probably understand the tension that I'm referring to. The tension between faith in God and fear of fill in the blank whatever's going on in your life. Faith reminds us that God's in control, that he can be trusted, that we can rest in him. But our flesh is prone to fear, prone to doubt God, to fear the pain that may come, to fear the loss we may experience. We are tempted to doubt God's goodness, to question his wisdom, even to wonder about his love for us. And one of the reasons I know this is true, that this is a tension that, that happens, this, we feel this tug sometimes to not believe truly what we say about God because we doubt him. I know it's true, not only because I've experienced it in my own heart, but because the Bible is replete with examples of this. One I think of is the question that's asked in Isaiah 40, verse 27. It says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? He's speaking to the people of God. He says, Why do you say this, that my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? You hear the pain in that statement? My way has been hidden from the Lord. It's as if God can't see me. There's things going on in my life and it's as if that maybe he must, he can't see me. He's disregarded me. It's a common refrain throughout the scriptures that the people of God at times feel forgotten. They have moments when they struggle to trust the Lord, to trust that he's in control, to trust that his plan is good. 
that his love never fails. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there this morning. 2020 has not been what we expected. For some of you, COVID is just the icing on the cake of a whole line of troubles and trials. With that in mind, we're turning this morning, like I said, to a familiar story. It's a story of Jesus and his disciples in a storm on the sea. And what we're going to see is a familiar response. The disciples respond in fear and they question God's care for them. So we're going to consider the story and the response of the disciples. But I want to suggest this morning that the story is not primarily about the disciples and their response. I think what Mark wants us to see more than anything, the main idea of this text is that Jesus is God, that Jesus has the power over all things, and that as God, he can be trusted. And so this is what he lifts up, who Jesus is. Jesus is revealing himself as God to the world. And the question then becomes the sub-question, not the main point, but the sub-question is, how do we respond to him? You understand that distinction? We could come to this text and see it all about us, but it's really all about Jesus, who he is, his power and his might. And then the the follow-up question is, how do we respond to him? As we recognize who he is, as we recognize his power. It's a story about Jesus as God and the reality that we can trust him. All right? Find our story, this account in Mark chapter 4. I use that word story from time to time, but let me just remind you this is true, okay? Probably better to say the account. Something that really happened. Let's consider this true story from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, starting in verse 35. Hear the word of God. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea and said, Peace, be still. And get this, the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Jesus said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this? The wind and the sea obey him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Our prayer is that God would be honored and that he would bless the reading and preaching of his word. It's a familiar story, isn't it? My guess is that most of you have heard it before and many of us many, many times. But it's also a story, and I've already alluded to this, that is ripe for misunderstanding. If we aren't careful, we can misunderstand what God was teaching his disciples and what he wants to teach us through this 
text. So I want to tell you on the front end, let me just lay this out, what I don't think this story is teaching us. This account is not intended to teach us that storms are going to come in our lives and Jesus will calm every storm. Have you heard that before? That a storm's going to come and Jesus will calm your storms. Look, he, he calms storms. And yes, Jesus does have the power to change anything in our lives in a moment. But that's not the point of this story. The point of the story is not that storms are going to come and Jesus will calm every storm. Instead, this text is a revelation of who Jesus is. Jesus is God. Jesus is powerful. And here's, here's where the application is for us. He can be trusted. See, there's not a promise here that he'll calm every storm. He calmed this storm. And when he did, we see the display of who he is. And we see this call to trust him. It's not a promise that he'll calm every storm, but it is the assurance that Jesus is God and that he can be trusted. It's a theme that we're going to be considering in some measure over the next several weeks. If you've been with us, then you know we just finished a whole string of parables. Jesus was teaching and we took several weeks to walk through each of these parables that he told. And now he, he moves and he goes and now we see four sets of miracles, four displays of the power of Christ. And this is the first. So what we're going to see is that he has power over demons, that he has power over sickness, that he has power even over death. And this morning, that he has power over the wind and the waves. And what Mark is helping us to see is who Jesus is. That Jesus is not just a man, but that Jesus is in fact God. And that he can be trusted. So we pick up the story there in verse 35. And something I want to encourage us to think about is that while this is a familiar story to us, and you saw the heading before we even started reading it, Jesus calms the storm. We may forget that those who were there did not know the end at the beginning. What we recognize is that as the passage begins is that this was the end of a long day. Jesus had been teaching. The day was over. And the disciples did not know that before night's end, they would face a life-threatening storm or that Jesus would intervene to save them. I want to encourage us always to be careful. As you read your Bible, try not to remember the end at the beginning. But go into this remembering that these are real people in real time, in real situations. Disciples really found themselves in the middle of a life-threatening storm. And they didn't know what was going to happen. So I encourage you to hear the story and to experience the fear that they experienced. I also encourage you not to too quickly allegorize the storm. We can, we can jump and say, oh, storm, storms of life. No, let's just, I encourage you to remember that this was a real rain, real wind, real fear, and a real revelation of who Jesus is as he intervenes in this situation. The disciples didn't know what was going to happen that night, and we too don't always know what's going to happen next. But the the point that I'll keep repeating is that Jesus is over all things and we can trust him. As we come to the text, Mark seems to indicate that this is the end of the same day that we've actually been spending our time in over the past month. 
as we've come together. He's been teaching. So you can go back, you may recall from Mark chapter 4, verse 1, what happened. Jesus is there and there's a crowd of people to hear him teach. So remember what he does? He, he gets into a boat. This is smart. He pushes the boat away out from the shore. The people gather on the shore and he has this little floating platform, all right? And he's, he's teaching from there. And he tells the parable of the four soils. And, and the other parables that we've heard over the last couple weeks, he spent this day teaching in the boat. We come to verse 35 and it says, on that day, what day? That day when he's been teaching parables to these folks gathered on the shore. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, to his disciples, let us go across to the other side. So he's already on the boat. He's already out on the water. The day is over. Instead of going back to the shore, now he says, let's, let's go on across to the other side. Verse 36, leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. What does it mean, just as he was? Well, he was already in the boat, right? He's been there, he's been teasing, so just as he was, let's just, let's not go back, let's go on across to the other side. Now, I don't want to make too much out of this, but I also don't want to overlook the fact that it was the direction of Jesus that took them out into the sea that night. That's to say that it wasn't an accident that they were out. And it wasn't because the disciples were being foolish. And no, they went on the direction of Jesus. And it's just a subtle reminder of the sovereignty of God. This is the plan of God. He wanted them out on the sea that night. They head out across the sea and we're told that as they're going, a huge storm blows in. Now, if you remember way back to our beginning weeks in the Gospel of Mark, we talked about the Sea of Galilee. And I told you then that just to get you an idea of the size of the sea, if you think of downtown Pflugerville, get that in your mind, to downtown Georgetown, from, um, from 35 all the way to 130. For those of you who are familiar with the area, maybe that means something. It's a pretty big scope. Pflugerville to Georgetown, 35 to 130. This is not a small lake. And so when they head across and they're in the middle, this isn't a thing where you can just jump out and head to the shore. When you're in the middle of the sea, you're in the middle of the sea. And we're told that as they go out, a violent storm comes. Now, if you've read much about the Sea of Galilee, you'll, you'll learn that one thing it's known for is violent storms. And that they could come out of nowhere and at a moment's notice. And here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to pretend to be a weather expert or to convince you that I know how geography creates certain areas that are prone to storms. But there, there's a lot written. If you go to any book about the Sea of Galilee, you'll learn this, that violent storms erupt over this particular sea very quickly. And there's a couple of reasons for it. One is that it sits 600 feet below sea level. So it sits really low, but the land around it is very high. And so this particular sea, it's like a bull. If you think about the size, it's a big bowl. And so what happens is as the cool air comes over the land and it, it mixes with the warm air of the sea, it can create windstorms that, that come very quickly. And maybe someone can explain to me later what I just said. Because I just read what I read. 
what I read others say. This cool air mixes with warm air, quick storms, out of nowhere, didn't see it coming. I'm just a side note. Some of you probably watch the news and they, they talk about high pressure and low pressure. They come together in storms. I'm just there for the five-day forecast. <laughs> but what I'm told is that this particular place is prone to these storms, and that's what happens on this night. Verse 37, a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. It's clear it's a serious situation. They're in a, a fishing boat. It's about 20 feet long, holds about maybe 15 people. This storm has come, and now there's water that's starting to fill the boat. Like I said, the sea's big. They can't just head for the shore. They're out there, and the text tells us it's a great storm, but I think the biggest indication of the seriousness of the situation is the response of the disciples. Do you remember what most of these guys did before they were following Jesus? It's because they were fishermen. They spent their life on the sea. These are grown men who have spent their lives out on the water. And when they start panicking and deciding that they may lose their lives, this is a clear indication this is a big deal. This is a serious storm. This is nothing to be laughed at. And what we see is that panic is starting to set in. But there's one thing that doesn't add up in the whole situation. We see the storm. We see the panic of the, fish, or the, the disciples. The winds are blowing. The boat's taking on water. But through it all, we're told that Jesus is in the back of the boat asleep. Verse 38, Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Several people have noted that Mark gives us more details here than any other gospel. We know that Mark most likely is writing on behalf of Peter. This is Peter's gospel. He told it to Mark and Mark wrote it down. And if you ever wonder about the historicity, is the Bible true? These details confirm that this is an eyewitness account. If someone's making up the story, they probably don't include he's on that cushion, right? But Peter remembers this. He was in the back and he's on a cushion. We have these little details throughout the story. But think about what's going on. In a boat like this, if water's coming in, the water's going to cover the bottom of the boat. And if someone's laying on the bottom of the boat, guess who's getting wet, Right? So not only is the boat rocking, not only are the disciples panicking, but Jesus, while he sleeps, is probably getting wet. Nevertheless, he sleeps. I think there's something to be said here about the humanity of Christ. His need for rest. Something we see over and over in the Gospels is both the humanity of Jesus and the deity of Jesus, or the fact that he's God. It's not an easy thing to wrap our mind around, but when we come to passages like this, we should stop and just remember this truth. This is an important part of what we believe as Christians. That Jesus came to earth and he was fully man in every way. And he was also fully God. Completely man, but never ceased to be fully God. It's the, the mystery and the glory of what we call the incarnation. That Jesus became flesh. God became man. And we see both these things highlighted in the story. The humanity of Jesus, he was tired. He went to sleep. He needed sleep. Trivia question, you can use this later. The only place in the Bible that refers to Jesus going to sleep, right here. 
we, we were told at times when he stayed up all night, and we assumed that most nights he slept. But this is the only place we're actually told of his sleeping. But we see here that he was tired, and no doubt he'd had a long day. He'd been teaching this crowd on the shore all day. He's now tired and sleeping. But I don't think his sleep is only a result of physical need. Once again, we see the plan of God. It was God's plan that on this night, he would reveal who Jesus is, that Jesus is God, and that he would reveal the weakness of the faith of the disciples. And in order to accomplish that, Jesus goes to sleep. We see both his humanity, but also the plan of God here. How do the disciples respond to the situation? We read in verse 38, their response. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? What a revealing question. We sense fear. They also say very explicitly that they think that Jesus is indifferent to their situation. To go back to where we started, maybe you've been there before. Anxious, worried, afraid, wondering if God is awake to your situation. Is God even awake to the fact that I have a need? Can't tell you how many times I've had people tell me, when you're a pastor, you get to hear lots of thoughts of people have about God. How often I've been told they feel that like God has forgotten them. And this is not a new phenomenon. In fact, we're told over and over in the scriptures that there are people who feel forsaken by God. Let me give you a couple of examples. We see them over and over in the, in the Psalms. Psalm 13, the psalmist writes, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Have you been there? God, for how long do I have to wake up in sorrow and go to bed in sorrow? How long? We hear the cry of Psalm 22, later quoted by Jesus. But here the psalmist writes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Saving me from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. I cry by night, but I find no rest. Maybe you don't write out your thoughts and maybe you're not good with words. But maybe if you did and you were, you would write something like this. We read in Psalm 10. Oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Here's the point. It's not uncommon for people to question the presence and the care of God. These are just a, a few examples, many in the scriptures. People in a place in life where they feel forgotten or ignored, it's part of our human nature. And I'm not suggesting it's right. But I'm just telling you that this is a natural response. We forget who God is and we distrust his involvement in our lives. And that's how the disciples feel at this moment. They feel forgotten. 
Or maybe they think that they know better what Jesus should be doing. They consider him negligent or uncaring. The boat's filling with water, Jesus is asleep, and they're frustrated, and they, they rebuke him. <laughs> Don't you care that we're perishing? It's an interesting accusation. There's a sense in which they're admitting that they believe that Jesus could or should do something, right? But at this point, it seems like he doesn't care, and their faith in him is replaced by fear, doubt, anger. It's a bold complaint. But Jesus' first reaction is not to correct them. His first reaction is to show his power. It's his response. Verse 39. Let me just tell you on the front end. We should be in awe at what happens here. Short story, familiar story, but don't miss this. Jesus awoke. When he wakes up, what does he wake up to? Screaming disciples. A boat that's being tossed. His clothes may be wet because here he has been sleeping in the water. He gets up and he speaks. The verse says, He awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea and said, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. It stopped. There was a great calm. What does he do? He speaks, not to the disciples, but to the storm. It's interesting to note the words that he uses and that Mark uses these same words to describe the way Jesus speaks to demons. We can go back to chapter 1. Maybe you remember the story. Jesus, this is the first time we read of him teaching in the synagogue. And we're told that people are amazed at his teaching. He spoke like one with authority. And as he's speaking, a man stands up, a man possessed by a demon. And he, he confronts Jesus. And we're told in Mark chapter 1, verse 25, that Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent. And told the demon to come out of him. It's interesting that Jesus speaks to the storm the same way and that Mark uses the same word. Jesus rebuked the wind and said to the sea, be silent. Peace. It can also be translated, be silent. And then he says, be still. It's a word that means to muzzle or to close one's mouth by force. Jesus said to the sea, be muzzled, be stopped, be still. And what's incredible is not that he said it, but that it happened. That's where I want us to pause and to stand in awe that he speaks to the wind and to the sea and they obey him. In verse 37, the storm was described as a great storm. And now... At the word of Jesus, we're told there's a great calm. So we see the contrast there. A great storm turned into a great calm. How? By the word of Jesus. Like I said earlier, this is the big idea. This is the main point that we should see in this story. The deity of Jesus on full display. Why is Mark writing? So that we can know who Jesus is. And this is a declaration. This is a, a line in the sand 
A moment where with his actions, Jesus makes this declaration, I am God. The disciples have seen some incredible things. They've seen him heal people. They've seen demons cast out, but this is different. Who can command the wind and calm a turbulent sea with his words? Who else but the creator? Who else but God? If you, if you know the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament, there are lots of references to the majesty and the power of God. And over and over, one of the primary ways that his majesty and his power are described are by his control of the wind and the sea. It's this common theme that runs throughout the Old Testament. Someone's describing God, they're describing his power. They say he's the one who controls the sea. He's the one who controls the wind. We read in Psalm 33. By the word of the Lord, he spoke. This is Genesis 1 stuff. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. God gathered the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. He creates the waters. He says he puts them in storehouses. He tells the waters where they can be. He speaks and boundaries are created and water obeys. Psalm 29, verse 3. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. You hear this, church? The, the voice of the Lord is powerful. Why, why are we in Psalm right now? Who speaks to calm the storms? Jesus. What we see here in Mark 4 is all these references from the Old Testament being fulfilled in real time, in person, with Jesus. They know that God is the one that controls the wind. God is the one who controls the water. And now Jesus stands up and he does it. I'll give you one more. Psalm 89. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you, God, you rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Who controls the ocean? Who controls the sea? Who controls the wind? God and God alone. Jesus stands up. He speaks, and the wind and the sea obey him. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God. I gave you more examples on your notes if you want to read more. Job talks about it a lot. The power of God manifests in the ocean and the seas. Probably the one that's most similar to our passage, Psalm 107. Jason read it for us earlier. But consider the, the similarities between what we read in Psalm 107 and what we've seen in our story in Mark 4. We read that some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, which I love that, just the glory of God in the ocean. Right? They, they saw it. They felt its power. God, he commanded and raised up the stormy wind, which lifted the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. 
The courage melted away in their evil plight. They, they reeled and they staggered like drunk men at their wit's end. You get the picture? Waves going up to heaven and crashing to the depths. And those who are on it are staggering because the boat is rocking. They cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. God made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. And they were glad that the waters were quiet. And he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love for his wondrous works to the children of man. What we see in each of these passages is God's control over the wind and the seas. In the Old Testament, the seas were a symbol for chaos, something too large to be controlled. God is the one who does it. Jesus is God. We see a declaration of deity. Know this, Jesus didn't always, all, only come as the king of the Jews. He didn't only come as king of all mankind. Jesus came declaring he is the king of everything. In fact, and just to continue on in our Christology lesson this morning, we've talked about the humanity of Jesus, the incarnation, Jesus became man. We're also told later in the New Testament that Jesus is the one who created all things. Say, well, God created all things. Jesus is God. We're told in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. We go to Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. By the words of Christ, things were created. By the words of Christ, all things hold together. And it only stands to reason that at any point, Jesus can speak to the wind and speak to the seas, and they must obey. And that's exactly what happens here. You say, you're going off on some rabbit trails. What I want you to see is what's happening here. This is a revelation of God. When Jesus speaks, he is declaring, he is showing once and for all who he is. He is God. Jesus spoke and creation listened. First he speaks to the storm and then he speaks to his disciples. Or we could say first he rebukes the storm and then he rebukes his disciples. Verse 40. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? It's where we see how Jesus responds to his disciples' rebuke. He asks two questions, and the first question is answered by the second. Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? What's he implying? They're afraid because they've lacked trust in God. They failed to recognize who he is and the power he possesses. We see here they, they don't fully understand yet. Because surely if Jesus is who he says he is, and he's going to accomplish what he said he's going to accomplish, then he can't die in the back of a boat, right? He has come to establish his kingdom. If they believed that Jesus was God, they would recognize that he could not be killed by a storm. 
for him to die in the back of a boat would not be to fulfill his plan that he came to fulfill. And so we see them questioning his wisdom and his plan. We struggle with the same thing, don't we? We believe that God's over all things. We believe that he controls all things. We sing about it. We profess it when we come together as a church. But then when times of life come hard, we are prone to doubt. Jesus exposes their weakness. And it becomes clear to them, maybe for the first time, who he really is. Look at verse 41. Here's their response to his response. It says they were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? We see this repetition. First, there was a great storm. Then there was a great calm. And now there is great fear. And not fear at the storm, but now fear as they recognize that they are in the presence of God himself. I told you at the beginning, the main point of the text, Jesus is revealing himself as God. And at this moment, the disciples see more clearly than they have up to this point. They are in the presence of someone far greater than they previously understood. And the only way to respond when you recognize that you're in the presence of God is fear. Some have suggested, well, well, what Mark means is they were in awe. They had reverence. No, no, no. They were terrified. Because in that moment, they recognized this is God. The one they just rebuked and said, don't you care if we die? They were speaking to God himself. And they say, who is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? How do we respond knowing who God is? I think most of us far too often think far too little of God. We don't recognize his power. We don't recognize his might. We don't recognize his glory. And we think of him flippantly where the most appropriate response to recognizing who God is is fear. But what we also see and what should be comforting is that the God who's over all things can be trusted. What we see is that God is patient. Jesus is patient with his disciples. We see it as we continue to read through the Gospels. They continue to doubt. There's other examples in Mark that we will come to where they continue to not believe. They continue to show a weakness of faith, but Jesus is compassionate and he's merciful. And what we should remember now, we can see Jesus as God and all his might, but we also remember why he came and why he was there in the first place. We see the power of God and we also remember that he came to save And when we recognize Jesus for who he really is, like the disciples did, that he's God Almighty, there should be a measure of fear, especially when we consider that we have sinned against him. Why did the disciples fear? I think in part because they knew they had just rebuked him. They had just spoken against him. And this is our situation too. We are a people who have spoken against God. We have sinned against him and we should be in fear. The Bible's clear that you have done this, every one of us, is born in sin. Every one of us has positioned ourselves against God himself. 
But consider, along with that, what he has done. God Almighty chose to come, to take on flesh, and to live as a man. To associate and live as a friend with those who would doubt him and question him. He has the power over all things, yet he allowed himself to be arrested, beaten, tried, and crucified. What I'm trying to get you to see is this contrast. God Almighty, and yet he has come and he has set his love on us. Jesus was revealing himself here to the disciples as God. And then he goes on to explain to them throughout his ministry that he came to suffer and to die so that we could be forgiven. Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Yet, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus is God. The one who made all things, sustains all things, and the one who controls the wind and the waves. And he's the one who died as a substitute for our sins. It's a fearful thing to stand before the living God. But through Jesus, we can be brought into a right relationship with him. We can be called his child. Let me try to wrap this, bring this all together. In Mark 4, Jesus calms the storm with his words. We should be in awe of his power and his might. We should also be in awe that the sovereign God came to earth, lived with sinful men, and put himself in a boat. We also shouldn't miss that he showed compassion. He's the one who controls the storms, and he's also the one who died so that we could be forgiven of our sins. I'll say this again. The point of the story is not that God will calm every storm in your life. Some of you are in the midst of difficult times, and for others, there may be difficult times ahead. God has not promised to calm every storm, but he has promised that you can trust him and that he will do what is good. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He has promised to never leave us and to never forsake us, that he will be with us to the end of the age. And church, we can rest in knowing that we are held by the God who has the power over all things. What's the thing we fear the most? For most of us, the thing we fear the most is death. Yet Jesus came to conquer death and to make it possible for us to live after death. He gave us the hope of eternal life. Even when we face that great enemy, we have hope through Jesus. 
So my plea to us as we consider this story is to recognize that we may face storms. And in those times, we should fear God and trust him. Fear God and trust him. I'll end by finishing the reading I started from Isaiah 40. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. If you feel forgotten, if you feel like you can't bear anymore, remember this. Our God is the everlasting God. Fear him and trust him.